Okay, so before we dive into the text this morning, super impressive, right? Brendan said Mephibosheth several times. It's a tongue twister. Y'all, I don't want to end up as a viral sensation on YouTube or TikTok mispronouncing that name. So you can pray for me as I try to get through this text saying that name multiple times. And let's hope I don't mess it up too, too badly. Um, let me pray for us as we dive into God's word this morning. Father, as we come to this text, it is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. And I just pray that your gospel would just sing clearly out of these pages. And that we would see your grace on full display. And that in seeing it, we would be transformed by it. So help us, Holy Spirit, as we come now to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When, when he was five years old, Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, and Jonathan's father, King Saul, both died at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. I think we saw this a couple weeks ago as we were looking at the story of, of Jonathan and David. And when the news got back to Gibeon that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, there was a panic that spread throughout the palace. With, with Saul and his son dead, the royal house was now in grave danger. You can actually read about some of this in 2 Samuel chapter 4. See, without, without Saul, whom David honored as God's anointed, and without Jonathan, whom David had a covenant friendship with, there was nothing now preventing David from coming in and cleaning house, getting rid of anyone and anything left behind in a regime that had held him long in exile. Because of Saul, David had been on the run. We saw this. He was hiding out in the strongholds, that he was out in the wilderness, and it was because of Saul. But now that Saul was gone and Jonathan with him, there was danger. David might come in and do away with anyone left over in Saul's household. And so there's a mad scramble that takes place at the palace to evacuate quickly. All the servants in the palace began to gather up their belongings and to make a run for it. And in, in, in the midst of this scramble, five-year-old Mephibosheth's nurse grabbed him and, and, and she began to rush out of the palace. But as she left to go, she tripped and fell. And in the fall, Mephibosheth's ankles were broken severely. And this is an ancient time, and so they didn't have things like orthopedic surgeons. And so Mephibosheth's ankles mended back together poorly. And he was never able to walk Again, Mephibosheth was, was carried beyond the Jordan to the mountains of Gilead where he lived in hiding in a remote village called Lo-Debar. And so he went from a, a son of a prince living in a palace 
to a cripple living in witness protection. I mean, this is a tragic story, right? And with dysfunctional legs and a depressing outlook, Mephibosheth was broken in every sense of the word. I mean, can you imagine the trauma of losing your heroic father, of losing your esteemed grandfather? Mephibosheth is now an orphan whose name literally means shameful thing. Living in a place translated dry places. I wonder if that's where you find yourself this morning. Perhaps you walked in feeling broken. Maybe you feel full of shame. Perhaps you're in a dry place spiritually. I think the good news of this story is that sadness is not the last chapter in the story of Mephibosheth. If you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the friendship between David and Jonathan, we saw that Jonathan was, was the king's son. And the king despised David because he envied him. David was successful in everything he did. David sort of had this Midas touch. The people loved David. And so King Saul grew increasingly jealous of David, so much so that he wanted David dead. And yet, despite that reality, Jonathan loved his friend and stood by him. Twice, the narrator says that Jonathan and David made a covenant with one another. And and in one of those moments, Jonathan says to David, you can find this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he says, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And it says, then, David, then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David and once again swore to David his love for him because he loved him as much as he loved himself. So in this moment, Jonathan and David enter this covenant with one another. And the commitment is this. Jonathan is basically saying this. David, I believe there's going to be a day where my dad is no longer king and you are king. And when that happens, I want you to remain steadfast in your commitment to me. And even if I die, I want you to show kindness to my family after I'm gone. David's commitment was to keep kindness even in Jonathan's departure. Now, in our chapter in 2 Samuel 9, it's been somewhere between 15 and 20 years since that moment where they swore to each other loyalty. And as we know, Jonathan did indeed die. And after Jonathan and Saul's deaths, David eventually did ascend the throne. And David got to work strengthening his kingdom. Under David's leadership, the 12 tribes were united. David moves the capital to Jerusalem and he brings the Ark of the Covenant there and he builds himself a palace. In the chapter before 9, we read about David's military campaigns. 
He's successful in, in multiple military campaigns so that by the time we get to 2 Samuel 9, the kingdom is steady and stable. David has really secured the kingdom. And with the kingdom finally settled, David asks this question. Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And we need to understand that this is not David simply wanting to do something nice. Right? This isn't a PR stunt. This isn't performative spirituality. Right? This isn't the ancient Near Eastern version of Instagramming a short-term mission trip. Or calling the local news to make sure they do a story about your community service event. Right? Hey, I'm going to be nice to somebody. Make sure it makes it into the scroll. That's not what's going on here. This is David keeping a promise. The word that is translated in my Bible as kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that means covenant love. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast faithfulness or enduring commitment or loving kindness. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it as a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I love that definition. See, David made a promise to Jonathan not to eliminate his family. He made a promise to keep loyalty to Jonathan's family, and he intended to keep that promise even 15, 20 years later because that's how real love works. It's binding, right? There is no statute of limitations on covenant love. It's for better or for worse. It's for richer or for poorer. It's till death do us part. I mean, 2 Samuel 9 is King David at his best. It doesn't get any better than this chapter when it comes to King David. We're going to see his worst in about two weeks. But this is David at his absolute best. Because in Mephibosheth's plight, covenant love came pursuing. David finds an old servant of Saul and he summons him to the throne room. And he asks him, hey, do you know of any remaining relatives of Saul? And Ziba tells him, hey, there's one. There's a son of Jonathan who fell and broke his feet when he was a boy. And he's living out in this remote place called Lodabar. And David says, well, I want you to send for him. Now, let's not miss the drama of what's happening in in the story. Mephibosheth has no idea of the promise that David and Jonathan had made to one another. And so when he hears that the king has summoned him to come to Jerusalem, this did not strike him as a good thing. It terrified him. One author imagines Mephibosheth being placed on a donkey To be taken to Jerusalem. And with every step that brought him nearer to his anticipated doom. But this is a wretched tale of his victimized life that would now terminate in a bloody execution. Mephibosheth, see I told you I wouldn't make it through. I just need to give him an abbreviation. Call him Phoebe. He thinks he's on his way to die. Dale Ralph Davis explains that when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. 
And you don't even have to go looking for this in near ancient texts. You find it on the pages of the Bible. You look, look at King Basha or Zimri or Jehu to find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. And so it was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. If there were any leftovers from the former royal family, they were viewed as a threat. They might try to form a coup. They might try to lead an insurrection. They might try to overthrow David. And so Mephibosheth thinks that David has finally found him out, that a spy has ratted him out, has told the king that a remnant of the old royal family has been hiding out, and he thinks David intends to do away with him. This is why when he finally arrives, he falls down at David's feet. Mephibosheth is pleading for mercy. Imagine it. Imagine him being carried into the king's presence because, remember, he can't walk. Imagine him being set down there before the king. It's a pitiful scene, really, isn't it? As he bows himself before the king, face to the ground, shaking in fear, pleading through tears for mercy. Then imagine the king on his throne. How long does the scene linger before he finally speaks? What's his countenance like as he calls out, Mephibosheth, I like to imagine him with tears in his eyes, smiling down at this young man who bears a striking resemblance to his old friend. And when Mephibosheth finally dares to lift his head up enough, he looks into a king staring at him through tearful eyes and gazes into the stare of a different kind of ruler than the one he grew up knowing in his grandfather. He looked into the eyes of love. David says to him, don't be afraid. See, I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Three more times in the narrative, the narrator will emphasize the table. It's a point of emphasis. Verse 10, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. From a tragedy to the king's table. Mephibosheth's life is being turned around by covenant love. But what's remarkable here in this story is that David's kindness didn't stop at merely sparing Mephibosheth's life. Now he goes far beyond simply saving his life. He goes far beyond the basic requirement of the covenant agreement. He begins to heap goodness on Mephibosheth. 
He gives Mephibosheth back his grandfather's fields and he puts others to work in those fields so that his family is always well cared for. From here on out, they will always have provision. They'll no longer have to live in low debar. They'll no longer live in this remote dry place. They're going to live in, in the fields, in the, in the ripest portions of the land. And Mephibosheth himself won't have to do any work because he'll be sitting at the king's table like his other sons. Did you catch that? King David essentially makes Mephibosheth part of his family. He doesn't just spare him. He begins to spoil him. He doesn't just acquit him. He adopts him. I mean, this is unexpected and unprecedented mercy. This is scandalous grace. Verse 8 says, Mephibosheth paid homage and said to David, What is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? This is the right question. This is the right question. And it's really the portal through which we find ourselves in this story. See, Mephibosheth was damaged goods. He was not only crippled, he was the enemy. He was part of the old regime. Mephibosheth is a McCoy. David's a Hatfield. Right? They're supposed to hate each other. And he's not at all useful to David. It's not as if there's something he can offer the king as a bargaining chip. There's nothing in this for David. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, he's the wrong stuff. He's the wrong stuff. But David's kindness to Mephibosheth is not predicated upon anything good or useful in him. It's completely predicated upon his relationship with Jonathan. Do you see that? David's kindness is not predicated upon something good or useful in Mephibosheth. David's kindness is predicated upon his relationship with Jonathan. See, it's the same for you and me. God shows us mercy not because we have something to offer him. God doesn't look at us and go, you know what? She'd be really useful for me. I think I want her. That's not how it works. We're the wrong stuff. We have nothing to offer. God doesn't need us. But when he looks at us, he sees something of his son in us. And he remembers a covenant that he entered into long before you and I were ever born. See, before the world was ever made, the triune God looked through the corridors of time and knew that the world he would create would stumble into sin. And he knew that this fall would leave us crippled and maimed by sin. And so even before the cosmos were spoken into existence, the Father and the Son and the Spirit conspired together to save sinners out of their tragic condition. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen and predestined to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. 
God entered into a covenant agreement to save sinners. And that covenant climaxed in the very Son of God coming to earth to give up his life. See, God saved us because of a promise he made long before we were ever in the picture. His kindness to us is not predicated upon something good in us. His kindness to us is predicated upon his own covenant promise. And in the same way that David's death, or Jonathan's death, on Mount Gilboa paved the way for Mephibosheth's seat at the table, Jesus' death on Mount Calvary paved the way for us to have a seat at the table. And see, through Jesus, God not only saves us, he seats us. The good news of the gospel is that God, through Christ, makes us co-heirs with him. There's a mystery here, but the Apostle Paul says that right now in Jesus Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly realm. And that there is being kept in heaven for us a reward, an eternal reward that is imperishable and uncorruptible and unfading. God makes us sons and daughters. Jesus calls us, the author of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters. The good news of the gospel is not only that God pardons you, it's that he possesses you. He adopts you into the family. We miss this a lot, church. We preach the gospel as this message to get out of hell. It's good news that God saves us from judgment. It's even better news that he saves us out of judgment into the house. Christianity doesn't simply teach that God forgives sinners. Christianity teaches that he loves sinners. And he loves to lavish sinners with his kindness. And see, when you find yourself asking Mephibosheth's question, when you find yourself saying, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me, you're beginning to understand the gospel. Dale Ralph Davis says the first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that he has no business, in a sense, loving whom he loves. What I'm saying is that we are the Lord's Mephibosheths. And there is absolutely no reason why we should be eating continually at the king's table. We really should be having communion this morning. Because we're welcomed to the table with Jesus. Titus says this, when the goodness and loving kindness of of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. God does not save us because of our righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We're Mephibosheth. And so receive the good news. If you limped in here this morning feeling like damaged goods, if you are low to bar, if you are in a dry place, if you are suffering through sadness and trauma, if you feel isolated and unseen, If you are broken and in need of healing, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, Mephibosheth's story can become your story. Because there is a king greater than David who pursues us in our dishonor and summons us to his palace. And he looks upon us with love and he invites us to sit down with him at the table. Jesus wants to show you kindness and mercy. He wants to have a relationship with you. He doesn't just want to save you from hell. He wants you to know him as a brother. And he has a special place in his heart for the lame and the weak. We can't miss how often the prophets associated the Messiah with proclaiming good news specifically to the lame. Notice it with me. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. When the Messiah comes, he brings healing to the broken. Or notice what Jeremiah says, for this is what the Lord says, watch, I'm going to bring them from the northern land. I'm going to gather them from remote regions of the earth. The blind and the lame will be with them and they will return here as a great assembly. They will come weeping and I will bring them back with consolation and I will lead them to the wadis filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble for I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn. Or Micah. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion for this time forth and forevermore. The Messiah comes for the lame. He doesn't come for those who are well, but for those who are sick and know that they are in need of healing. He comes from those who are far removed to bring them close again. He comes to heal us and to make us whole. And if that's you this morning, then you can receive his healing. He says, come, come and receive my love because there's a seat for you at the table. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we struggle to believe this love. That you truly love the least. Because out in the world, the system is really a meritocracy. Where we have to earn our way and prove ourselves. We have to show that we have value. We script resumes together to prove ourselves. We practice interview techniques to really try to put our best foot forward. But with you, you see right through all of that. And you say to us, I don't love you based upon how you prove yourself to me. I love you because I love you. I love you because I entered into covenant a long time ago and decided in free grace and mercy to set my love upon you. 
Help us, Jesus, to believe that. And help us to respond to the invitation that you're bringing us. May we sit at your table and feast. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.